You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. I'm happy where I am now. I've been with Domino for 20 years. I'm still releasing albums. They still seem to be going well. I make a living. I bought this tiny wee house that I'm sitting in now. I look after my family. So it's worked out now. And if I'd known it was going to be like that way when I was 20, I probably would have been fine with it. But, you know, when you're struggling in bands and you're releasing singles and no one's coming to the gigs and all that sort of stuff, it, it it's pretty, pretty depressing. It's only really the love of the music that gets you through, you know. James Yorkston is a Scottish singer-songwriter from King's Barnes a quaint village on the coastal stretch of five in Scotland. In his youth, he toiled in punk and indie bands that he mentions never went anywhere. An unexpected turn to the traditional Irish music of his childhood would change his fortunes and land him supports with folk legends Bert Jench and John Martin. Now 20 years on, James Yorkston has released his 10th studio album, called The Wide Wide River. It came out to much acclaim in January this year. His backing band on this record are a Swedish collective of musicians called the Secondhand Orchestra, most of whom he had never met before the recordings. But this experiment works. The melancholy suits the lyrical sparseness and space given over to the players. It doesn't hurt that James is blessed with the kind of voice that beckons and warms up to its listener, rendering his tender meditations on loss, aging, and emotional struggles comforting. James had learned early on that long tours supporting revered indie names might go a long way in that promise of mainstream success, but were detrimental to his mental health. How do you make these right choices and still have a career? In this episode, James reveals the lessons life has dealt him. I'm here for you But as you grow, you may just see Sometimes I struggle, struggle it seems Sometimes I Tell you that 
My name is James Yorkston. I'm currently in Saladike in the East Nook of Fife in Scotland. And I'm here to talk about my current album, which is called The Wide, Wide River. It's on Domino Records, and I made it over in Stockholm with a band called The Second Hand Orchestra. It must have been 2019. The first recording went well, so the second one we went back, say, six months later. We had to build it around gigs, because it's it's a long way to go from uh, Scotland to Stockholm or Gothenburg. And then we just did occasional days here and there. It was a lot of fun just turning up with these people who I didn't know and plugging in, you know. I grew up in uh, Kingsbarns then, back then, was a very small agricultural village. So we were maybe a 10-minute walk to the beach, an incredible beach, a very long, exposed uh, and quiet beach because nobody really knew about it. They know about it now, of course. Um, because the, there was a golf course in King's Barns, but it got ploughed up in the First World War for farming so they could plant vegetables and things. And that recently got reopened, and that and a whiskey distillery. So now it's quite a well-known place, and the village is bigger than it was. But growing up, it was wonderful and quiet. There was 150 people living there, or maybe less than that. Those three farms. So, yeah, it, we, we had a, a very rural lifestyle. You know, we just played in barns, and we chased animals and we we drove tractors you know just the usual sort of stuff when i was maybe four or five you'd just spend the day on the beach you'd leave the house at nine in the morning and you'd get back at six my parents they'd be totally fine there'd be no worries about what was going on you know and that was they were just incredible days maybe on the way down you'd go into one of the farms and you'd play on the hay bales I mean there was a lot of playing on hay bales you know the beach was the great thing during the summer so we went there a lot we'd build castles with the bales that sort of thing you know because they were the little square bales and we had a few friends there my best friend lived over the road you know I still remember the sound of the birds waking me up every morning it was mostly pigeons but also blackbirds and the other great memory, of course, is this time of year when it was winter, when it was very snowy, and we'd go and sledge down on the beach. Now where the golf course is, that was just fields. So we used to sledge over where the golf course is now, which was, um, uh, yeah, a lot of fun. And again, we'd just disappear for hours and hours and just lose ourselves in our imaginations. My first work on a farm, I guess, I was about... 10 or 11 that was just kind of helping out just doing very general stuff I only really worked on a farm for two summers and that was a bit gruesome that <laughs> it was thing you know because it was lambing season so you started in the lambing season and uh, a lot of it was things like castrating lambs skinning the dead ones and tying their pelts onto other lambs that had survived and then burying them and then things like herding cattle i wasn't really cut out for the farm work my brothers worked on farms a lot more than i did i was too much of a sap <laughs> i remember when me and vic were playing on a castle of bales we jumped off and he was doing this thing where he flipped over midair and landed on his feet i tried to do it and i landed on the back of my neck and uh 
screamed and screamed. And I still suffer from that injury today. That's one memory I, I don't particularly enjoy. I never enjoyed getting chased off the fields by the farmers. But, you know, it wasn't too bad. I suppose I can't really complain. Mm. The only thing I had which, which I, I wouldn't wish upon anyone is I had a, a strong Catholic upbringing. It's left me with a severe distaste and distrust of all organized religion. And I know people who have had less strong but still religious upbringings, and they've found it as a comfort, um, the idea that there's this God. Um, but I just found it as a an absolute yoke around my neck. So that wasn't the best thing. You know, being taught by nuns and things like that, I didn't enjoy that at all at the time. And looking back on it now, it was ridiculous. And uh, they would teach us things which I would consider cruel, there's the funny stuff that they teach you, which is stuff like, don't take a doll into the rain because it'll get baptized and come to life. <laughs> you know, there's the stuff like that that you can laugh at now. And you're laughing and you should because it is ridiculous. But the thing is, I went to school when I was four years old and I believed them. Because why wouldn't you believe them? They were nuns. So I believed them, which yeah. was problematic. But the one which really I found the most offensive was teaching us that the only people who are going to get to heaven are Catholic. And everyone else is going to hell. Now, that is a crazy thing to tell people. That only... Because it, we it was a small Catholic school. There's maybe 10 people in each class. And then we went into the secondary school where there was like a 1,000 people mm -hmm. in the school. But we've been taught for the first seven years that everyone who's not Catholic yeah. is going to hell. And all of a sudden, we're mi mixing with these people. And you're like, oh, it doesn't even matter, pal, because you, you're off to hell, Ken. <laughs> see when you're dead you're in hell um so it uh it was pretty weird you know and i'm i'm kind of down on the whole thing now and i st i stopped going to church as soon as i could and it caused a huge huge uproar in the family but i was like i'm uh, that's me done i think i was about 15 when that happened when you were younger what was the first time you sort of became cognizant of music as something that was kind of transcendent it would have been church, you know, without a doubt it would have been church. I mean, especially, I don't know if you know the, the hymn, Go the Mass Has Ended. Yes, which Go is just, the Mass, the mass has, ended. has Ended, Children of the, the Lord. Lord. Yeah, that one. <laughs> that, I mean, I remember when that song came on because we were delighted because it meant we could get out of church, you know. <laughs> that was like, that's when music was transcended. It's like, oh, yeah, here we go, man, here we go. We're getting to walk out, you know. Um, but also loads of the other sort of funny, happy, clappy ones. I guess that was the first time. We weren't really encouraged to have music in the house because my parents were strict Catholics. You know, punk rock was happening. So I remember my brothers used to get into trouble for bringing back records by people like The Specials and things like that. I remember also dancing with Vic when we were about, this is all this kind of seven to ten year old, on his lawn in his garden, listening to his dad's old rock and roll tapes and just having a laugh. And then we got into um, a guy called Adamant, mm -hmm. um, when I suppose we were ten. And then from him, we just fell into punk. And we got into punk very, very quickly. So bands like the Dead Kennedys mm -hmm. and the Damned, they were big bands for us. And then... The, I was 14 or maybe 15 when we went to our first gig, which was The Dam. And that was a lot of fun. So when did you first start to play a musical instrument? Vic, who lived over the way, his dad bought him back a banjo. And I pestered my brother and he borrowed an electric guitar from his friend Neville. I guess we were seven or eight. Mm. 
And I remember having piano lessons around then as well, and also violin lessons. So I guess there was a whole kind of slow introductions of music coming from a few different areas. Then you start to join bands yourself and get into your sort of indie rock scene, I assume. But when did you realize that maybe you weren't really into that sort of thing where you had an exact set list and you only played songs the way that was practiced note for note and maybe the kind of music that they were playing in, in these bands that you were in was not for you? It must have taken some time to come to that realization. Mike was just clearing out uh, his old childhood room the other day and he sent me some photographs of uh, old cassettes we'd made. So we'd, we'd release albums. One of the bands was called The Cows and the album was called Bar Bar Bar. And we we just wrote songs about the village, you know. When we were getting into the punk stuff, we recorded a lot of punk songs. So we recorded Buzzcock songs, just anything we could kind of replicate. The Ramones, I remember we tried to copy that. But we couldn't play any chords or anything like that. So we just hold down a bar chord but we didn't even know to tune that into a, a bar chord so we just kind of had this <laughs> kind of racket you know with two prepubescent boys on top going <laughs> you know so we we did all that and then in my, in my school years I was in punk bands I suppose and then when I started my first band in my 20s one thing that we've missed out from all this is every summer We'd go down to West Cork in Southern Ireland, where my father had got a house in the mid-60s. And we'd spend weeks and weeks there. We hear a lot of traditional music. So by the time I leave home and I'm living in Edinburgh, I'm still interested in the stuff John Peel's playing. I'm still interested in the punk and the the African stuff and the sort of New York hardcore and all these, all these weird things that John Peel's playing. But... Mm-hmm my ears are kind of going back to the traditional music that I used to hear in Ireland. So I start exploring my way around that and um, finding bands like Planksty, probably the biggest band in the Irish folk revival, but also an English singer called Annie Briggs. Oh, yeah. When I heard Anne Briggs, I was like, oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. Listen to the space there is around what she's singing. Listen to how pure and perfect her voice is and how unornamented it is but it's also clearly related to the Shannon singing the old style singing from Ireland just some kind of perfection where we grew up there was a music library but it only had like maybe eight cds in it you know and it was sort of like the Grease soundtrack and the best of abba that sort of stuff then when you moved to edinburgh the music library was extraordinary i just started hoovering it all up and uh really started exploring a lot of african music everything I could hear, a lot of South American music, French music, because I'd been exposed to the music of Jacques Brel, who's obviously Belgian, but sang in French uh, in my teens. So I started exploring people like Georges Brassard and Leo Frere. Mm. But there was this one African guy called Degary, and his, his first solo album called Malagasy Guitar. I heard that, and I was just like, oh, my Lord, what a beautiful record. And the same thing it had with uh, Anne Briggs was the kind of 
the space around it. And hearing those two, that's when I got my first acoustic guitar and tried to make mm-hmm. that kind of music. And that is when my interest in punk rock began to wane. How does all this connect to the Fence Collective? I only got involved in Fence when I was maybe 29. Fence kind of really started around one guy whose name was uh, Kenny Anderson. He performs as Ken Creosot. Kenny had been in a lot of bluegrass bands. So they're very influenced by American bluegrass, which of course takes a lot of its roots from over here. But Kenny had been signed to a few of the Highland labels. Basically, he had just grown completely sick of them, being told what to do as an artist. So he began a record shop and a record label called Fence. In the area where we grew up, there was a lot of musicians, the ones who kind of went on to make a living out of it, being Kenny, Steve and and John and uh, Gordon Lone Pigeon from the Beta Band, Katie Tunstall, myself, Pictish Trail. And that came about because all the way through my 20s, playing in these terrible bands that had never gotten anywhere, and just finding myself, as you said, playing the same set night after night after night, and just hating it. I mean, I remember going on one long tour, which was sponsored by the Melody Maker, and it was supposed to be our big break. We were wondering why we'd got it, because we weren't a well-known band. In fact, we were the opposite. Turns out we'd got it because we were touring the universities, which you'd think would be great, you know, built-in audiences, but it was the summer. So there was literally... No one at some of the gigs. Mm. The singer in the band I was in, he insisted on playing the same set all the way through from A to Z. No no changing, no doing anything different. And by the end of that tour, I'd had enough. And I basically said, look, I'm out. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I did that, the weight off my shoulders was amazing. But one of the things that gave me that strength was I'd been going back to St. Andrews and playing with Kenny. And Kenny would be doing a show and he'd say, come on, James, just come on certain stage. And I'd have my mandolin with me and he'd go from song to song to song. And I'd I'd know some of the traditional ones. I'd know some of the covers, but I didn't know any of his. And he just let me sat and play along with him. And I was just like, this is how free music can be. And so I started going more often there and it inspired what I was doing with my music because he had a record shop and in amongst the CDs, there was like David Hasselhoff and there was Duran Duran and stuff. And then there was him, King Crazo. He'd put one of his own CDs in and then Madonna and, you know, and all this sort of stuff, you know. And I just thought, well, if he's putting CDs in his own record shop, I can do that. So I I wrote enough songs and, and I put it on a CD. That was for one of the reasons. The other reason was when I left the band, I was going to go to university. This was the idea. But I wanted a reminder of what I could have been doing throughout mm-hmm. my 20s if I hadn't wasted it away playing in other people's music. I'd spent maybe a year trying to make those songs as good as I can. I had them ready when I met Kenny and uh, he put them for sale in his shop. So Fence was a very fertile area, all based around Kenny and his, at the time, very generous way of sharing his music. And so you break out and you do your own thing. And then you catch a break when John Peel gives you some airplay. What was that like? John Peel was a Radio 1 DJ who would broadcast sort of around 10pm till midnight when I was a kid growing up. When I first heard him, it was a revelation to me, the music he was playing. Almost every night I'd listen in under the covers. And when I got to the age that I could have a cassette player, I'd listen in. If a song sounded good, I'd start recording it. So I had cassette tape after cassette tape of John Peel shows. So he was a legend. When I sent him a cassette or a CDR, I was utterly, utterly skint. I was working part-time in a bookshop. I had no money at all. 
and it was a big investment just because you know i did stuff like i bought a new envelope because i didn't want to offend him by sending him an old envelope just crazy mm-hmm. stuff like this and one of the songs is called moving up country roaring the gospel but i was thinking maybe that's going to be too long for him you know maybe i should just call it moving up country oh what's, what's going to happen but i ended up thinking no i'm going to call it moving up country roaring the gospel that's its name so i sent it to him and he played it and it was just massive it was a massive thing in my life all the way through my 20s we'd been in these bands and we'd been sending him stuff and he'd never touched he'd never touched them quite rightly because they were rubbish but then when he played this one song i just honestly it was like such a huge deal to me and i remember just walking down the road just feeling as if a massive weight was off my shoulders and like friends of mine were just kind of looking at me in a different way they're like you got played on Peel. I said, I know, I know, what's going on? But then he played me again like two days later. And then one Sunday morning, I got a phone call. I remember lying in bed and I had a blarney with my then girlfriend. This guy phoned up and said, hello, is that James Wright? <laughs> and I said, who's this? He said, this is Joff from Bad Jazz Records. Is that you I heard on John Peel? And I was like, yeah, 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 probably. What, what, can I help you? He said, yeah, I really want to release it as a single. I said, whoa, <laughs> you know, and it just, <laughs> it just really did a huge chain of events. That single got released on Bad Jazz Records. I sent a copy to, to the local venue because John Martin was playing. The, the venue said John Martin doesn't take su- supports. So that was the end of that. But somebody in London bought a copy of the single. He got in touch with me and he knew John Martin's manager, and they offered me the whole tour, like all 30 dates of the tour. So I did those 30 dates, which was another story. I'd never done a so I'd done one solo to- song, but one solo show before. I'm, I'm wittering away here. I know I am. Supporting Bert Jansch, you know, but I was in no way prepared for, for this tour. Uh, and, you know, it was it was a crazy, scary thing. I could barely play. The songs were okay. I couldn't sing, you know, I was a nervous wreck. But then at the end of the tour, I was in a bar with Vic, and Vic said to me, that's Lawrence Bell from Domino Records, shall we go and say hello? So we went and said hello, and he ended up signing me. (laughs) On the strength of those 10 demos or whatever it was that that Fence had, yeah, astonishing, really, astonishing. Mm. And it was lucky, but then I had done the work. I did have the songs to give him when he asked for them. So those 10 years that you were toiling in this supposed rubbish band, it all made sense. It's very zen. It happened when the time came. Nothing you had done prior to that was wasteful, I guess. No, I mean, I'm I'm happy where I am now. I've been with Domino for 20 years. I'm still releasing albums. They still seem to be going well. I make a living. I bought this tiny wee house that I'm sitting in now. I look after my family. You know, I provide enough money for the family. So it, it's worked out now. But of course... Mm. And if I'd known it was going to be like that way when I was 20, I probably would have been fine with it. But, you know, when you're struggling in bands, you know, and you're releasing singles and no one's coming to the gigs and all that sort of stuff, it, it it's pretty, pretty depressing. It's only really the love of the music that gets you through, you know. James put together a backing band of friends and released Moving Up Country as James Yorkston and the Athletes. John Peel had proclaimed him the finest songwriter of his generation. This country and folk-inflected album was unlike anything else on the indie charts in the early noughts. 
It was well received by critics and earned him a coveted support slot with musician and celebrated PJ Harvey producer John Parrish. So, Moving Up Country was your first debut album with Domino in 2002. Yeah. And that winds up doing pretty well in your tour of the US. Say you wind up leaving a longer support tour with John Parrish, which to me, that would be the gig to stay on. And you take a shorter gig opening for David Gray. And, and he's, you know, he's more of a arena pop kind of performer. But your reason for leaving one tour for another was purely because you were kind of cracking up. Yeah, well, we were in, we were just traveling in circles. We, me and the band were just, uh, we were learning as we went along. And, and we were all the band were weirdos, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, I put myself in that, in that, uh, in that category, you know, we didn't really know what was going on. We were drinking too much. We were, some of the band was smoking too much. I wasn't really at, at that point. It was exhausting and bewildering. And we were getting put on these tours with people who were thoroughly unsuitable. I ended up calling up Domino and said, look, I've got to get off this. I can't do this John Parrish tour because it was something like six weeks around Europe. Mm -hmm. And they said, look, if you do that, no one's ever going to book you again. So I had to be really careful. But then David Gray came out of nowhere and offered us those six shows. And there's a big difference between six weeks, maybe it was seven weeks and seven shows. You know what I mean? There, there's, there's a big difference. Mm. And Domino said I could do it. So I took it and I just thought, that's fine. All I need to survive is another 10 days or whatever. And the shows were huge. I mean, some of them were 12,000 capacity. It was a completely different ball game. I guess, looking back at it then, touring with, with Mr. Parrish would have perhaps been the best thing to have done from a cool point of view, or a, or certainly because he had booked us in before David Gray came along, but I didn't have the option. Mm. I mean, I, it was there's that story of Scott Walker crashing his car rather than do a gig. We were at that level of thinking, mm. this has got to stop. And it did stop, but it stopped in an okay way in that we did these crazy <laughs> shows, these crazy big shows. I mean, I remember we played uh, at the point in Dublin. I think we did either two or three nights in a row. So that's 12,000 people. That was the biggest one of the tour. At the end, I said to the guys, All right, I'm going to go and see how we've done with the merch, you know, pick up the money, that sort of stuff. And they're like, okay, James, good luck. <laughs> went over. <laughs> you made a lot. We sold one T-shirt. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. One T-shirt. So I don't think I don't think um, David Gray's audience were the best for us. But that wasn't the point. It wasn't the point at all. It just meant that we went on the motorways. We were staying in nice hotels. We were getting breakfast. We were getting rooms to ourselves. It was all yeah. this sort of stuff. You don't give up cigarettes because you want to give up cigarettes. Mm. You know, cigarettes are amazing. You you give up cigarettes to prolong your life, and that's why we gave up that tour. <laughs> In 2008, you actually write about this depression in the song When the Heart Rolls In from the album of the same name. The saddening sweeps through me like a stubborn sea wind When I'm feeling my worst and the best news in the world fails to move me I cannot bear your touch or to share a word I 
gossip or humor Well that's when I need you most Just to be here to be quiet and warm And free with a drink Until I forget such moments exist When the heart rolls in It's just a question of waiting it out And that's when the music I swear gets me through I close my eyes and everything is okay Heart rolls in, it's just a question of waiting things out And that's when the music I swear gets me through Close my eyes and everything's okay How did you become aware that this was something you were suffering from? Because I think until relatively recently, we never really talked about depression in that way. I mean, especially when men were concerned, whereas like right now, it's everyone talks about it. But for you back then, what was it like? Like, how did you kind of discover this, that you were suffering from it? Oh, well, I, I basically, I went to a, a doctor and said, I'm losing my mind. And she said, describe the symptoms. And I said, this, this, this. And then she asked me a few other things. It was like, um, do you ever think you're Jesus? And I was like, no, I never think I'm Jesus. And, and then she said, um, uh, do you ever get voices in your head? And I said, only once, once when I was really hangover. Really, really hungover, mm -hmm. but I've never had it since. And it was years ago, and I've never had it before. And she said, what do you do for a living? I said, oh, I'm a musician. And she just said, listen, it happens to a lot of creative people, and it's just depression. That's all it is. And I said, what? What do you mean? But it's that thing, as soon as you get a word for it, it kind of really, really helps. It's like, ah. Oh. For another thing, I was, I was having panic attacks because of that John Martin tour kind of screwed things up for one reason or another. And... And so I was describing to the woman, and then this is what's happening, and this is what's happening. And she says, right, you're catastrophizing. Mm -hmm. And I'd never heard that word, but of course, as soon as I heard it, I knew exactly what it meant. Um, and I was just like, oh, my God, there are words for these things. So once I knew what was going on, it really helped. Because once one knows what's going on, one can try and do something about it. So those... I remember the first doctor I saw about it just said, basically, you can put you on these pills if you like. But if I were you, first of all, I would try yoga. Mm. So I tried yoga for the first time. And, you know, for the first three or four weeks, it didn't make much of a difference. But then maybe after the first month, I was suddenly feeling better. It was a tricky thing to do. The whole depression thing, it was really tricky. In my 20s, it, it, was, it was a completely different beast because I didn't know what it was I was fighting. It would come on and it would, it would sit on me for six months at a time and it would just be absolutely awful. And one thing that signing to Domino did do was it gave me something to do. And it slowly just become easier and easier as I've got older. Basically, I think it's as I've got older, as I've become to recognize the signs and what to avoid. For example, at the moment, I'm totally off alcohol. Yeah, learning what the signs are and how to avoid them. But then you can't say that to a 20-year-old because a 20-year-old is just want to go and have a good time, you know. So um, it's hard to say. But I, I feel much better now. And I have friends who are in their 70s who are still suffering from it. And I feel for them, depression is different for every single person. And that is one thing that I think people have to remember, especially people who don't believe in it or people who think it's easily curable. Like, for example, there's me saying, oh, I've, I've learned to see the signs and kind of work away from them. That's taken me decades. And it doesn't mean that 
anyone else is going to be able to do that. It doesn't mean me saying yoga really helped doesn't mean that yoga is going to help anyone else. Exercise has been good for me, but doesn't mean it's going to be good for everyone else. You know, every flower of the same species is different. And so is every human and it all works differently. So I can't pretend to know the answers. But for me, I feel okay at the moment. Well, all this was going on when you'd have that sort of fog for six months. Did writing help you out of it? Or was that at a point where you couldn't even do that? Like you didn't even know how to do that? Um, I can't really remember much helping. You know, now I think what helps is getting into the the kind of flow state thing. You know, mm. I think that helps. I remember trying to write. But the thing is, back then... Because I can't read music, I can't write music, as in, you know, like in a classical sense. Mm. There was never any sense of, um, I try and do music, but I can't play anything. I mean, I, I can play guitar now, but I've been, I've been playing for 20 years. And, and I'm a rudimentary player compared to anyone. Like, if you see sort of like a talented young guy, mm. they can finger pick within like three or four months. It took me maybe three years to be able to finger pick. You know, it, it's just through sheer bloody mindedness. Mm. So if even if music would have helped back then, and it probably did help, what was at the end of that for me? If I write, write a song, I take it into the band, the band will mutilate it or reject it. And so it was like, ah, you know, it wasn't a particularly... Uh, it wasn't a particularly easy time. But having said that, I'm sure we had wonderful times with the band as well. I'm sure we had a lot of fun. Mm. I, I just can't remember them. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of a fog. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm I'm still friends with uh, Vic, the, the main guy who's in all those bands. And he, we were the two that argued. We, we were a pair. You know, we were too similar and we argued and argued. And that moment, I said earlier in the podcast, that moment when I said, I'm leaving the band. But I'll stay on playing bass and I'll play your songs. I'm not going to bring any of my mind. I'll stay playing bass until you find someone else. The band just got so much better uh -huh. because it lost that tension and he could bring in his songs and he wasn't worried about me saying, no, I'm not playing that. No, that one's shite. No, I'm not doing that. So he got better. His vision opened because I wasn't holding him back and wasn't holding me back. Over this decade, James released five solo albums with his band, The Athletes, as well as part of the Big Eyes family players. He also continued to release music with the Fence Collective. But not long after the release of When the Ha Rolls In, James's daughter was taken ill unexpectedly. For several years, making music was the furthest thing from his mind. From a musical point of view, what those years in hospital gave me was the the final gig I did before she was diagnosed was at a show over in the west of Scotland and it was sold out and the audience loved it. I'm not, I'm not saying that as, uh, the audience loved it because they don't love all my shows. I'm not saying that as some kind of idle boast. I, you know, I do a lot of shows and the audience don't get it at all, you know, so I'm not pretending it was a boast. I'm just saying it was a successful show for me. And I came away feeling absolutely nothing. I came away and I remember driving back home uh listening to a friend's album and uh just thinking i can't do music because i just don't care anymore these people are you know they loved it but it meant nothing to me and then it all went horribly wrong at home and during those years in the hospital so i've said this a few times it was lying beside her when she was in the hospital bed at night 
And of course, all the lights were on, all the wires, all that sort of stuff. And the other place I knew in my life that had sort of flashing LEDs and, and things was the recording studio. And and it was just such a strange thing. It was just like, what? how have I gone from one place to this hell? Why, how have I gone from that amazing place to this hell? And why was I taking that amazing place for granted? So when she got better, when we were finally allowed out, when it seemed that things were going to be okay, I just knew that when music was allowed back in my life, I was never going to take it for granted again. And it's been that way ever since. I've kept that fear, I've kept that enthusiasm, I've kept that bewilderment, that awareness of how lucky I am to be doing music for a living. It was an awful thing to go through, but that one positive. I mean, I'm still doing music now, probably because of then, because I probably would have stopped. When James returns, he has fire in his belly. He releases I Was a Cat from a Book, an album dedicated to his daughter. It is followed quickly with the Celadite recording and was Sailing Society. That's produced by Alexis Taylor from Hot Ship, with guest vocals by old friends Katie Tunstall and Pictish Trail. One of the album's highlights features them. It's the witty Guy Fawkes signature. In his deadpan manner, James compares the annoyance he feels with an unwanted guest at his door with the actual torture of the Catholic monarchist Guy Fawkes, who had conspired to blow up the Protestant parliament and its king and was tortured mercilessly on the rack. Your friend from next door came round again. He bought some good coffee and some cheese that was just destined for the bin. Even the cat didn't touch it, just turned on its nose and fled to the safety of your side of the bed. I almost invited him in. He said he had a book to show me, some autobiography of a silver-screened harmonica man. I smiled and told him, We call it a movie. But he didn't quite understand. He asks, You like real music, don't you? A pussy rides, and Louis Armstrong. Sure, I like Billie Holiday. Dooby dooby doo. Do you know her? Well, I guess you do. I think of Guy Fawkes' signature. Before and after torture What in the world they are going through Will it change their whole demeanour? The folly of organised religion is unsurprisingly a recurring theme of James's music through the years and his spoken word songs are particularly memorable. In My Mouth Ain't No Bible he rails against a friend who had taken his own life. But his first spoken word song Woozy with Cider has a more contemplative tone. Oh, but what would I know about the scene in this city that has swallowed up friends, lovers and family? Just give me a village the size of a teacup. But you're happier here, spread out with your eyes closed. I feel I should order a drink in celebration to welcome the summer whose first day is ending. But should you wake, you'd catch me, of course, and ask me the wisdom of drinking once more. I cast my mind back to yesterday's wedding, where we got drunk and fell over. 
I did my best to be polite to a family I'd never met, but on numerous occasions, I guess I could have tried harder. Of course, by the end of the night, I was best friends with everyone, and everyone's wife. But right now, I can remember their names, no matter how hard I tried. As the sun glares through the hotel window, I wonder about future, and where it'll lead to. I wonder if you'll be laying there 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the line. I'll still be staring out at the street, confused about love and life. It'll be interesting to see if anyone ever bought those songs of mine. If anyone heard those words, then I never got quite right. I think I can be honest in presuming the world is not exactly going to be leaping out of his bed to make me rich, using my songs in adverts, selling oranges. That sort of spoken word thing, how did you come upon that? I stumbled on it because of Fence Records again. We used to put out these limited edition EPs, and they were very limited. They were like maybe 30 copies. And it would be people like myself, even though I was releasing albums on Domino at the time, um, and Kenny, and whoever else was, wanted to be involved. And, and a lot of people that one wouldn't have heard of, basically, because, you know, the bands that existed for maybe two weeks, that sort of stuff, you know. <laughs> and um, this one was, it's just basically a collaboration thing. You, you, your name goes in a hat and it gets pulled out. So I got put with this electronic guy called Reporter. I seem to recall maybe I tried singing on top of it and it didn't work. That might be a false memory. Eventually, I just started talking on top of it. I was going through my lyric book and I found two pages. Together, they made a piece, basically. Mm. And I just started talking on top of it and it just worked. The kind of tone I was trying to get with Woozy with Sido was my mother used to, because there were so many of us, my mother used to read us these uh, stories into cassette and then she'd play them at night and then go and put somebody else to sleep and then somebody else. You know, whilst there was a cassette of her <laughs> reading I don't know, whatever it was. Um, Wind in the Willows? Wind in the Willows, yeah. I, I was actually thinking of uh, Beatrix Potter, but yeah, it's something yes. like that. You know what I mean? Um, so I was trying to get that tone, the kind of conversational tone that perhaps you would use when you were doing something like that. And it got released in Fence. The reaction it got within the Fence community was so strong that I just thought, okay, I can use this for one of my albums proper. But it was also because those first two albums, Moving Up Country came out and people called it a folk album. Mm. And I was like, what? This isn't folk. These people don't know anything. And then Just Beyond the River came out. Again, it was all the folk thing. And I began to get scared that I was painting myself into a corner. So on the year of the leopard, there's a lot of falsetto singing and there's a lot more varied instruments. And there's the spoken word piece. And I was really trying to push away from my the sound of the previous record because I was very worried that I was only going to be able to make that one kind of music if I didn't you know what I mean if I just kept on making this mm. this kind of acoustic sound then I was just going to be trapped in that sound which I've tried to avoid and I'm delighted I did you know I'm delighted I made that decision all those years ago to kind of push away from that and he has continued to push himself in 2015, he joined forces with double bass jazz musician John Thorne and Suhail Khan, a traditional Sarangi player for Yorkston Thorne Khan, an Indian folk and jazz fusion trio with songs in English, Hindi and Urdu. On his latest, The Wide Wide River, and at the request of the album's co-producer, Carl Jonas Winquist, he records with a band of strangers in another country. 
between those who stay and those who leave. I remain, but we got swept away. There is no downside. What do I mean? There is no upside. There is no upside. There is no upside. There is no upside. It was the first song that you guys recorded, but. Describe to me what it was like when you first ran it through with um, the secondhand orchestra, because I understand that they didn't actually know the songs. You hadn't like sent them everything in advance. No, no, they hadn't heard a note of it, and they didn't know anything. Th- that that song was written to be simple. It was written so I could play it, and they could jump on board very quickly. And it was a relief when I heard them. It was funny. I, I met them all the night before, or I met like six of them the night before because they played a show with me. They'd learnt like two of my old, three of my old songs, but then it was a different six people for the gig. Like when we were recording, it was very. It was like, oh right, okay, so nobody's here. All these people, I went to the trouble of remembering their names. None of them are here. Um, but I just played, and they joined in, and it just felt good. And I made sure that I was confident with the songs. I made sure I had the energy to drive the songs forward, and they they fed off that. It was quick. And an enjoyable process. It was indeed a jovial and lively experience that translates into the jaunty melodies of songs like "There Is No Upside" and "Ella Mary Leather." The space that James had often admired in the music of his musical heroes, he cultivates here, allowing a few lines to carry into songs that stretch along, giving the musicians in his secondhand orchestra the opportunity to really play. This lightness of touch suited the gravity of its lyrics, with its themes of loss and the blues. The blues in the lyric is just、uh, depression. You know, that's what the blues is. I don't really consider it anything to do with talking about the blues as a style of music. Having said that, there are a number of musicians,、uh, blues musicians, who I absolutely adore and have re- very much influenced how I play. For example, Skip James. The great guitar player Mississippi John Hurt, another great guitar player, and Mississippi Fred McDowell. Those are probably the three that I love the most, and their style and energy has has been a constant source of inspiration for me. But when I use the word blues in a song, like a short blues or tender to the blues, it's really just depression. You know, <laughs> it's as simple as that. And、uh, that song in particular, again, it's just about. Two of my friends who were going through a fickle old time, you know, and a very old-fashioned blues. It's just a way of saying it's mental illness, you know, which has been around for a long, long time, and that's what it's it's that's what it's talking about. I'm not talking about muddy waters or something like that. I mean, that would be absurd. <laughs> This is a song about muddy waters. Here we go, tender <laughs> to the blues. Oh yeah.
All of my friends are solitary creatures. We get together twice a year to talk about life from the outside, from the inside.、Mm-hmm. One of the songs that also stood out for me, and it's this sort of、uh, lament about our short time on Earth. There's a sense that you're talking about people, friends that you've lost. Where was your head when you wrote that song?、Um, literally, it was in Saladike. But、um, sorry, no, that's not very funny. <laughs>、um, it was, you know, I'd been to visit a friend, and、um, and we'd been talking about life. And in the song, it says, "All of my friends, solitary people." We get together thrice a year to talk about life on the outside, and that's it. It's my best friends are scattered around. They're the sort of people you can warm into immediately, but we're not all great at looking after ourselves,、mm. you know. And this particular conversation, I, it was just—I was asking how he was, and he was saying he was okay, but you know, he had been walking around and you know looking at the beams, which ones were going to be strong enough to hold his weight. And a lot of my friends live in that kind of isolated, secluded mindset, but they're the people I, I truly value, and it's just a kind of song for them, really. Male suicide is is a very prevalent thing、uh, in the UK. I'm sure it is with you as well, and also,、um, yeah, no. So it it wasn't it wasn't.、Uh, I don't know. I just kind of. Touching the wound, but but not digging at it. You know, a dear friend of mine.、Um, well, yeah, I'm sure we've all lost people. We've all lost people, and、uh, yeah, I, it, it, it's it's dark humour, I think.、Mm, and I think it comes through in the song. It, it's so potent. It's filled with that sense of loss, without. I don't know, just moping around in it <laughs> without moping around. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know exactly what you mean, but I mean that's 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 what I try and do. It it's hard, you know. With with my mouth ain't no Bible. I was、mm. really shouting at a friend who who had done it, and、um, just wondering what on earth I could have done to have save him. But we test the beams is kind of about the second verse, especially is about.、Um, A friend of ours, and she had been going through all sorts of trouble, and and there is there's definitely that feeling of what what can we do, you know, and so the second verse is talking about that. It's it's saying, you know, you, 
you know, I'd done my best, but it hadn't got through and, and she hadn't reacted well, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's tricky, but I, I do feel that when somebody takes that um, choice, I do feel that those of us who are left behind are allowed to talk about it and write about it and discuss it. But it, sometimes it is hard to talk about and write about and discuss. Mm. It's, it's almost easier to write and put it in a song because it's couched in a song. Hmm. Uh, but when you, when you sit down and you have to speak to someone like me at length about it, the thing about talking about the songs is is the answers in the songs for me they're very not transparent but but they're very obvious maybe that's because i wrote them mm-hmm. but um yeah yeah no no it, yeah it, it's it's tricky mm. it's funny when when my first my first my best friends died uh, was doogie paul who played bass for me for a long mm-hmm. time and he died of cancer and my father said to me shortly afterwards I said, well, that's the first of my friends to die. You know, it feels really weird. And he said, well, they'll only speed up now, James. You know, (laughs) they're going to get sooner and sooner. And that has really happened. You know, that's really happened. And too many of them have taken their own life, really. It's uh, disgraceful. If you lean in and listen to the white, white river, it's not the loss that lingers, but the sense that life is indeed fleeting and hence precious. And if there is a God, surely it's in the small things, the little graces we observe with the ones we love who love us back. We watch and breathe in and then breathe out Awaiting our own time But what else can we do? Some paint pictures of what happens next Blues, red sunshine and happy After more than two decades and records that are consistently well received by critics, James hasn't achieved that sort of mainstream popularity that perhaps his songwriting deserves. It's a funny thing because I'm not very well known at all, but I absolutely love it. My my life is great. I live in a tiny uh, fishing village. I play small gigs in front of maybe 100 people. Maybe if I go to London, there'll be more than that. But the people will sing along. They'll know the lyrics. They'll know the the albums. I'll play in France. People will bring along entire collections of everything I've released and the queue up to get it all signed, you know. It's not popular music. It's pop music, but it just isn't popular. But, you know, I'm extremely happy with that. I don't play any shows in the local area, so nobody knows really what I do or anything you know it's a great place to be in Domino don't expect anything from me musically they never tell me what to do I don't really have expectations with journalists I mean no one really cares enough you know so I'm in this great place where I can do art for a living it's a wonderful place to be in so I'm very happy with it 
the thing that gives me the most satisfaction is being on the beach with my children by a, by a long way or going for a long forest walk or or buying them an ice cream when they least expect it or something. You know, that's the thing that gives me... The, the music is a very, very private thing. And after this album, because this album's had so many interviews all around the world, Australia, we've had a few from America, all around Europe, with Zoom calls with people like yourself... I'm going to have to kind of forget about that all when I go on to the next record because the last thing I need is is thinking, oh, what are people going to think? Because I never think that about my music. I just get on with it. And it's a very pleasant place to be. And I'm, I'd rather stay here than become well-known and suddenly have expectations. Choices like wine. You've been listening to Under the Radar Podcast featuring James Yorkston. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfern. Additional editing was provided by Azane Sumeri, with media and graphic design by Jenny Woodward. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfern. You can find us at www undertheradarmag.com If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Till next time. Choices like wide rivers Summer for your love, 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 love And it all turns out we are something to swear on Something we would not have had And it all turns out we are somewhere to pull Love, 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 love Choices like wide rivers Choices like wide rivers